Master of Souls here, right? That's your title up at Radiant Bible Church. Uh, that's a Uh So he will be uh, coming and blessing our church uh, through this preaching this morning. So make sure you give him your full attention and love. And make sure you also get to say hi to uh, his wife and his uh, daughters who are here with us. Uh, so make sure they feel welcome and love. Uh, so a little bit just about Chris. Uh, he obviously is a pastor up at Avon. He came, went to seminary with Joel and I when we were in seminary up at Faith. And Chris was always the one who organized, most on top of things, when all of us were like, didn't really know where things happened, when things were happening, when things were due, we could always count on Chris to be the one who would help us. And so, Chris, thank you so much for uh, yeah. coming and yeah. our church. Love you, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, as Esteban said, my name is Chris, and I get to be one of the pastors at my home church up in Avon. It's only about an hour from here. It's not, uh, not that far. Uh, and... Um, Greetings from Radiant Bible Church this morning. Um, you know, it, it's great to be with you again. I was actually here about five or six years ago when Pastor Josh was on sabbatical. So if I look familiar, that's probably why. For some of you who've been here for a while. Um, uh, and it's been too long. So my family and I are delighted to be with you here uh, this morning. You know, even though our two churches are um, in different ministry contexts, we're still united together. Um, around one great mission, right? And that mission is to proclaim magnificence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, church? Um, so it's my uh, joy and privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. So please take your Bibles and uh, open them up to Romans chapter 8. Romans uh, chapter 8. And uh, we're going to uh, cover the final nine verses of this uh, glorious, glorious chapter here this morning. It's on, if you're using a, a Bible on the floor there in front of you, it's on uh, page 944. 944. Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to start here by, by reading through the whole uh, passage, and then we're going to go back to the, the start of the passage and work our way through it and see what the Lord has for us uh, this morning. So Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 31, the word of the Lord says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray and ask for God's help this morning. Heavenly Father, would you be manifestly present in this room right now as you have been through worship and now as we continue to worship in your word here, God, might you just be with, might you encourage, might you bring conviction where conviction is needed would you be near to us in this time? Heavenly Father, would you help us to understand? We know the Holy Spirit uh, discerns the, your thoughts. And so, Holy Spirit, would you help us to discern 
what you have for us here in this text this morning. Help us, O Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So a long time ago, uh, there was a, a king, uh, an evil king, in fact, and he decided to make war with another nation. And, and so he did. And while he was doing that, he found out that someone, another man, was passing secrets about the evil king and his, his army to the other nation, which was giving the other nation the upper hand, the advantage. And so the evil king finds out where this uh, man was lodging, and he, he sends a great many horses and chariots to surround the city at night so that the next day they can attack and capture this man and uh, take him before the king to learn of his fate. And so they do just that. And the next morning... A young attendant who worked for this wanted man went out of his home and he saw that the entire city was surrounded by this great army of horses and chariots. And in great angst and in great distress, he runs back inside to his boss and you can imagine what he he must be thinking and, and he says, oh my goodness, What are we ever going to do? Now put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. Can you imagine what he he must have felt? Can you imagine the despair or the distress, the anxiety, the, the fear? I mean, an entire army has come against them. What are they going to do? The weight must have been crushing the helplessness, the the hopelessness of the situation. Evil is about to triumph. Suffering and death is imminent. Can you imagine? You know, right now, in our church family, we're in an extended season of suffering. And as uh, pastors and elders, uh, we really sense and we feel the the crushing weight of of that pain that so many of our people are experiencing. And it seems sometimes to just uh, surround us like a a great many horses and and chariots threatening to crush us, threatening to overwhelm and overcome. Times maybe even seems a little hopeless. And perhaps you're in a similar season of life as well. The sin, uh, suffering, and Satan are all against you. About to destroy, devour. Well, friends, let me encourage you this morning to lean in to the Lord in this passage. Uh, Because uh, the truth is that we're going to really dig into here in just a moment is that God is for His people. And if God is for His people, then no one and nothing can ever possibly stand against. And so this morning we're going to look at four proofs. How many proofs? Four proofs that demonstrate that God is for us. Proof number one. Here's the first one. God is for us because He gave. God is for us because He gave. Look with me again at verse 31, if you would, please. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against? 
Uh, Paul starts this section off with uh, several rhetorical questions here. Uh, here he's, he says, what then shall we say to these things? Then and, and these things here take us back to the previous verses that Paul has just covered. It kind of has this, this idea behind it. In light of what Paul has just written, then this is what we are to conclude. And so we have to, we have to look back at what Paul has uh, just taught us to better understand what comes next here in this immediate context. And so let me just make a quick note here, uh, because it's not obvious uh, here in our, uh, in our English translations, but in the, uh, these verses, and because of how they're constructed in the Greek text, it's likely that these things that Paul is talking about or alluding to here go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 5 in Romans. I love how the, the book of Romans uh, progresses. Um, Paul begins with acknowledging the sinful plight of all of humanity. No one is good. All are evil and hostile toward God. But then God makes the way of salvation through the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not our works that save us. It's our faith in the work of Christ Jesus. And God justifies us. He declares us innocent on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And then we come to chapter 5. In chapter 5, we find out that we're no longer hostile toward God. And now we get to enjoy peace with Him and if that's not good enough, we come to chapter 6 in Romans and we see that we are united with Christ in His death and His resurrection. And therefore, it says that we've been set free from the bondage of sin. And then we come to chapter 7 and we see the, the reality though is that we, are sin, we still have our sin nature and, and so we're still prone to sin and we do commit sins. But thanks be to God who continuously delivers us from our sins through Christ Jesus. That's how Paul concludes in chapter 7. And if that's not good enough, then we come to the beginning of, of chapter 8, and we see that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells in us. He gives testimony that we belong to God. He helps us in our, our weaknesses and intercedes on our behalf. He, he also then is a conforming us into the image of Christ. And that brings us up to verse 31. And Paul is saying, in light of all of that, in light of all that I've just taught you, and the glorious truth that's there, if God is for us, then who could possibly stand against? And how do we know this? What's the proof? Well, if chapters 5 through 8 and a half aren't enough proof in and of themselves, then look here at verse 32 with me. It says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? See, God is for us because He gave. He, he, he gave up Jesus. He, he handed Jesus over. And in, in the uh, Greek text, there's uh, emphatics all throughout that, that statement there in verse uh, 32. He, he, he's trying to emphasize what God has done here. It's important. Pay attention. Don't miss out on this. And God did not spare Jesus from loss or discomfort, and he handed Jesus over to his enemies. If you're a, a, a parent, um, think what it would 
be like to hand your only son to a bunch of evil, no good people, knowing that they were just going to murder him? But why did, why did God do that? Well, the text says here. It says, for us all. So if, if anyone who would believe on, on the name of Jesus might be saved and would be saved and is saved. Do you know that, that Christ is the greatest gift that God has ever given us? No greater gift. And we've been, we've been spared because Christ was not. And so if, if God did not spare Jesus and hesitate to give us this greatest gift, how much more is God willing to give us the other gifts that we need for life and godliness? Now, I, I want to uh, point something out here. Because uh, sometimes we have a, a knack for seeing the gospel in a me-centered way. Uh, sometimes uh, we have this uh, innate desire to want to make the gospel uh, about us, to put ourselves at the center of the gospel. And see, church, God is only for us because of the saving work that Christ did on the cross and with his resurrection. Uh, Christ paid the penalty that we deserved. Christ united us with him in his death and resurrection. Christ makes us heirs to eternal life. Christ reconciles us to God. Christ clothes us in his righteousness. You see, from start to finish, it's all about Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, the fact that, that God is for us is really about magnifying the glory of God. It's about pointing all of creation to the wonderful, powerful, beautiful creator of all things. Now, uh, notice also that these gracious gifts that God uh, gives us, that God bestows upon us, is given only for believers. Uh, Paul is, is talking to the, to the church in Rome here, and uh, uh, he's talking to believers. He's talking to those who have placed their faith in Christ. This is not, not an argument for universal salvation. The hard truth, one that's difficult to stomach sometimes, is that God is not for unbelievers. God's actually against them. You may say, wow, Chris, that, that sounds pretty harsh. I mean, that, that sounds like you're, you're, you're making the Christian faith an exclusive fan club. That's not very accepting, Chris. I mean, don't, don't you and doesn't your God care about all people? Well, yes. Yes. In fact, uh, Scripture says that, that God is, is patient. He's not wishing for anyone to perish, but to all to come to repentance. You see, God made each and every one of us, believers and non-believers, in His image. God cares. But Scripture also teaches that God is just... And he can't ignore sin. And so those who have not placed their faith in Christ, Scripture teaches that God's wrath remains on them. It doesn't say that God's wrath will be on them in the final judgment. No, no, no. 
Uh, John chapter 3. That God's wrath remains on them today. And if that's your situation, it doesn't have to be. I want to invite you to trust in Jesus today. His blood covers your sins. No matter what sin, or how many, or how often. And God will adopt you, not into his fan club, but into his family. God is for us because he gave. That's the first proof. Here's the second proof. God is for us because he justified. Because he justified. Look with me uh, at uh, verse 33, if you would please. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So uh, Paul asks another uh, rhetorical question here. Who can bring an accusation against us? Paul asks. So uh, I, I'm an engineer and, and uh, was an engineer before I became a pastor. And uh, when I was in my undergraduate engineering studies <clears throat> at that other university north of here that shall remain nameless, some of you just judged me right then, didn't you? <laughs> I, I took a, a final exam in a really difficult design class. And ultimately, the professor of that class accused me of cheating on the final. Now, I didn't cheat. It wasn't true. But he had some evidence that suggested I did. Eventually, the engineering department as a whole wanted to give me an F in the course and put my, in my transcript records that I was guilty of academic fraud. Some pretty serious accusations, to say the least. Truthfully, because of our, our sins, there are some pretty serious, legitimate accusations that could be leveled against us before God. We're not told who or, or what brings accusations against us or how all that works. It's not important here uh, in uh, this, uh, this text here. But we are told that no accusation will ultimately stand against us. You see, in Christ, we move from accused to acquitted. Not guilty in the courtroom of God's judgment because we've been justified by faith. And, and so perhaps uh, uh, you're worrying a little bit uh, these days about what it's going to be like to stand before God someday. Well, let me just say, if you are in Christ, God is not going to accuse. You've been acquitted. And you have no fear to stand before our loving, holy God because he will say, you're mine. You belong to me. Jesus' blood covers you. We stand acquitted before God because he's justified. He has declared us innocent. He's declared us righteous on the basis of Christ's actual righteousness. Now, 
God is for us because he justified. That's the second proof. Let me look at the third proof together here. God is for us because he raised. He raised. Look at verse 34 with me. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul asks the question here. Who will condemn us? So this, the word condemn has this idea of pronouncing a sentence upon someone. Pronouncing a sentence upon someone. So think again about a courtroom scene, if you will. A person stands before the judge, and the judge declares them guilty, and then pronounces this sentence, death. Capital punishment. You see, friends, this was, our, this was us. This was, this was our state before Christ. Our sins deserve death. That's just punishment for a just God. So how is it here that Paul can say that we stand uncondemned? It's because Christ is the one who took our punishment. He took what, what we deserved. He paid the price by dying for our guilt, our sin, our shame. And he didn't stay there. More than that, it says here in the text, he was raised on the third day. We just celebrated that as churches last uh, Sunday, didn't we? Oh, and by the way, Paul also adds here um, that Jesus Christ is now seated at the right hand of God and he's interceding on our behalf in the throne. Now get this uh, earlier. I I mentioned and uh, uh, alluded to it in chapter 8 here. This is really cool. Don't miss this. In chapter 8 it says that the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf with groans too deep for words. That's in verse 26. Here we see that Jesus is also interceding for us. So, the second and the third persons of the Trinity are both interceding on our behalves. Right now. This very minute. How cool is that? How awesome is that? How wonderful is that if you're in Christ? Oh, and I'll just throw in this as well. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the very beginning of this chapter that we're studying, says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So practically then, what does that mean when I sin? When we, when we when we sin and we still do sin, what, what do we do? Should we fear? No. No, we repent. We turn our faces back to the Lord and we rest in the promise that He has forgiven us because of the cross work that Jesus did. That's why Jesus does not have to come back and die after every one of our sins. It's because His blood covered once for all past, present, future sins. So then we're free to repent and go... God, I I sinned before you. Please forgive me. And God does. Every single time. He's not going to hold our sin against us in eternity. He's not going to hold a grudge. (laughs) 
You know, I find it, it interesting that in a time such as ours, when the prevailing message in our culture is acceptance and inclusion, that simultaneously in our culture is condemnation and cancellation, and it's just soaring. A follower of Christ, you and I are never canceled or condemned before the Lord. And in fact, in Christ, we move from condemnation to commendation. I wonder what Jesus is saying right now about us in the throne room. Could it be like, hey, they're in Christ, they're in me, I'm united with them? I don't know. Maybe we'll find out someday. Sanctified imagination, right? <laughs> Jesus is interceding on our behalf. That much we are told. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So the the first proof that we saw today is that God is for us because He gave. The second is that God is for us because He justified. The third is that He raised. And now here's the fourth proof. God is for us because He secured. He secured. Let's look together at verses 35 and 36 here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Separation has this this, uh, idea of, of division, dividing out. And here Paul specifically uh, lists some, um, some uh, situations that can typically tempt us to think that we are separated from the love of Christ. Tribulation, affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And then, and then Paul even doubles down on that and says, uh, in fact, that he, like, he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. Which, by the way, that psalm is about asking God to fight for His people. Begging Him to come to their help and redeem them. And even when persecution becomes so great that God's people are even being slaughtered, they are still not separated from His love. That's the point that Paul's trying to help us see today. A while back, I read a a book about our brothers and sisters in Christ living in Iraq. Uh, The book follows the trials and persecution of the Christian community over about a 15-year period in the 2000s. The rise of of terrorism and and ISIS brought much suffering upon them, and uh, uh, they specifically were targeted, um, and the Iraqi Christians were the bullseye. They were being killed for their faith in Christ. Question? Are those Christians separated from the, love, from the love of Christ? Look at the answer here in, in verse 37. What's the very first word? What is it? No. It's okay. You can talk, you can talk with me a little bit. It says, no. 
Look, look at this. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah and amen. He says that we are more than conquerors in Christ. And our, our situations, the, the, the sometimes extreme pain that we must endure, it may tempt us at times to believe that we are separated from the love of Christ. But God is for us. And this means that we stand secured in His eternal love. So even in our darkest hours, our, our most painful moments, our deepest struggles... And in our overwhelming weaknesses, nothing separates us from Christ's love. How can this be? If all these things are happening to us, then, then, then how can Paul say that we are winning a glorious victory here? Because it certainly looks like we're losing. So how can, how can we win by losing? Two ways. Two ways. First, God works all things for His glory and our good, because He's using our suffering to make us more like Jesus Christ. That's earlier in chapter 8. Second, because His life, this life, our lives, are a microscopic dot on the timeline of eternity. This life is not all there is. Scripture says that if we die, we're in Christ, we're immediately ushered into the presence of our Lord and Savior. And that is far better. Nothing and no one will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Paul leaves no room for doubt with how he finishes in these verses here. You see, in Christ, we move from separated to secured. So whatever your situation, struggle with your own sins or struggle with someone else's sin against you or struggle because of the, the reality of this broken world with physical illness and sickness and mental struggles uh, with mental health, uh, natural disasters, school shootings, whatever that may be, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. Earlier, I mentioned the, the story of the man and his uh, young attendant surrounded by this insurmountable army, and the despair and the fear that gripped the attendant when he realized that their world was uh, against them. You know what this boss said in response to his angst? He said, Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now can you imagine this young attendant hearing those words going, What? Are you kidding me? Have you gone bonkers? Because last time I checked, it's just the two of us, and there are thousands around the city. What do you mean? The boss then prayed that God would give this worker the spiritual eyes to see and understand. And when God answered that prayer, 
the young attendant saw that the whole area before them was full of horses and chariots of fire. Imagine that. And of course, uh, the boss in this story is the prophet Elisha. And God rescued him and his attendant on that day. God fought for them. He rescued them in their darkest hour when the crushing weight of despair, fear, hopelessness, and helplessness was bearing in on them. God was for them. And the evil did not triumph. You can go read about this in 2 Kings chapter 6 if you'd like. In a more glorious way, a much more glorious way, on this side of the cross, God is for us in Jesus Christ. So it may be a dark hour for you. It it may seem like an insurmountable situation that will overwhelm and overcome you, but we don't have to be gripped with fear or anxiety or despair. Because in Christ, Paul makes it clear that God is for us. Who can stand against us? No one. Nothing. Through Christ, God has has changed us. He's transformed us from foe to friend. From accused to acquitted. From condemned to commended. From separated to secured. For his glory and our joy. So let's encourage one another with these words this week and every week until Christ calls us home or he comes back and takes us home. Okay, church? Let's stand together as we pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the salvific work that you have done. The glory that you bring to your name. We exist to exalt you. And now in Christ, we can. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. God, I pray that they would walk away encouraged with the truth that you are for us and you are with us. No one and nothing will ultimately stand against us. I pray for those in this room, in this building, that don't know you, God, would you bring salvation to them through faith. Oh God, thank you. May the work that you have done and the truth of your word overflow from our souls through our mouths into endless praise of your name. We love you. All glory to you in Christ's name. Amen.